Well, all I can do is say thank you. Love you guys and just am grateful to be a part of this family and um, of what God's done and what he's continuing to do. So um, I'm just glad to be here this morning. Let me set my clock. You definitely want me to do that, I promise. Uh, This week I've been thinking... um, I'm sure you've noticed that there are a lot of things that are, well, they they say easy, but they do hard, right? We have that phrase that's actually cliche, easier said than done. And if you've lived any period of time, you know there's things that just, they say easy, but they do hard. Um, Like if you've bought any electronic device in the last number of years, they give you what they call a quick start guide, which is really just a lie used to be that you could tell how complicated something was by the size of the instruction manual they gave you. Now they just put all that on the internet so they can deceive you and they give you this nice little card and say, here you go, you'll be fine. And it's always more complicated than that. It says easy, but it does hard. Or if your parents, um, I'm sure you've run across these words, some assembly required. Those are like favorites, especially Christmas Eve. They come on toy boxes and bike boxes and anything from Ikea. Right, I remember one time I bought, or we bought, uh, a swing set for our girls when they were young, and it says some assembly required, and you would think it would sink in. This is going to dominate the backyard, and it's in flat boxes. A lot of assemblies required. In fact, I had to do everything. The only thing I didn't have to do is machine the parts. So when they say some assembly required, that's just kind of a, uh, says easy, does hard. Or how about... Um, the easiest 10 pounds you'll ever lose. Isn't that a great one? You know, and there's some guy or some, you know, woman who's on this machine and smiling, and they're never sweating. You know they look like that before they got on the machine because to actually lose weight, you're grimacing and sweating, and, and you're going to just watch the pounds melt away, right? Like Eskimos watch the permafrost melt away. It's not going to happen. It's something that says easy, but it does hard. And that gets updated all the time. You probably have seen the commercials on TV for those gourmet meals that you get in the mail, right, with the family that's all gathered around and they're all chopping and, and, and doing, I don't know what they're doing with the food. And it's supposed to come in the mail. It's going to make it easier for you to have something tasty and nutritious. <coughs> Excuse me. And this great gourmet meal you're going to put together. And it never works that way. Davette found one of those, you know, things, and they had a special deal. So we tried it for a few times, and it never looked, we never looked like the people on TV, right? They give you a card that shows you how it's supposed to look, and all that card does is mock me. It's like, it's not looking that way. And, and when you finally fix it, you're not even quite sure what you fixed. So the last meal we had, we sat down on our table, and I took a big bite, and I said, wow, that is the most amazing tempura fried avocado turnip and chipotle torta I have ever had in my life. And one bite was, that was good. Easiest 10 pounds I'll ever lose. (laughs) Set that aside, right? There's things that say easy and do hard. Like when my girls were little, sure, dad will help you with your math homework. That's a good one. 
Right? I, I was into science, so I did all the study. I went up through all calculus, and it should all be simple. And early on it is, and then it gets harder and harder. And well, let me, give me a few minutes with your book, and give me quite a few minutes with your book. And finally, I knew I was in trouble when one of my girls asked me for help. And as I'm helping her, she looks at me and says, Dad, you're doing it all wrong. <laughs> well, excuse me. No, no, Dad. My teacher said you would do it that way. That's the old way. Right, because numbers have obviously changed. Back when, when I was doing math, we didn't have so many numbers, so we could do it this way, and now they're... I finally actually learned seven magic numbers that could be plugged into the system and would solve any problem. And whenever my girls would come to me, I'd give them those seven numbers, and if they'd complain, I'd say, have you used the seven numbers? No, I haven't. Go use them. It worked perfectly. It was the phone number for somebody that taught math that I knew. Right? Says easy, does hard. Or how about this one? Love your neighbor as yourself. That one says easy and does hard too, doesn't it? When you say love my neighbor as myself, Lord, ah, which neighbor are you talking about? Right? I mean, maybe physical neighbors we struggle with. I've had great neighbors over the last number of years, but that's not always been the case. I remember the first place Dave and I moved to right after we were married. We lived between two crazy people, I think is the best way to describe them. On one side was a guy that I affectionately now call Captain Underpants. And he was this, I don't know, he seemed like 100 years old. He was probably my age, but then he seemed like 100 years old. And uh, he would he was constantly drunk and staggering around in nothing but his briefs and making loud noises and just like dude, this is my, my new wife. Can you just put some clothes on and, and just, just stay in your apartment? And then he lived a life that was not real clean. So he invited all these friends into the apartment, so to speak, and we shared a wall. So I used to buy the Raid in cans like this, you know, with the hose and the squirt thing, just to try to maintain our zone of cleanliness And on the other side was a woman that I affectionately now call Mrs. Blair, who always hated the management and was getting back at them. And the only way she knew how to do that was to leave the water running full speed all the time, because they paid for that, and turn her TV up as loud as she possibly could, hence the name Mrs. Blair, and leave the doors open to drive everyone crazy. Am I supposed to love those neighbors as myself? Or I remember years ago in another church I was at, there was this woman, for whatever reason, decided she was my enemy. I I don't know why. I'd never had an enemy before. And she just was out for me. Am I supposed to love her? Or maybe even a little more close to home, there was somebody I was working with really close, and um, they were just lying, manipulating, and hurting a bunch of people that I care very deeply about. And I could see it, but they had the wool pulled over their eyes, and I'm just thinking... Am I supposed to love them as myself? Says easy. Does hard. If you have a Bible, would you go ahead and open to Luke chapter 10, please? We're going to look at one of the most beloved stories in the Scripture. And if you just want to follow along, I'll read it, and then we'll talk about it. It's on page 869 if you're using the Bible from the bench there next to you. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
Start in verse 25, would you? It says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. A lawyer is not somebody who files lawsuits or prosecutes or defends criminals. This is a religious scholar. He's an expert in the Word of God. He's literally the guy that has the answers because he spends his whole life studying the law. And he stands up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, let me just stop for a second so that we don't have any confusion, because we want to do two things here, or we don't want to do two things, I should say. We don't want to dismiss this text and make it say what it doesn't say. We also don't want to be confused by what it says. This guy says, what do I need to do for eternal life? And then Jesus says, well, what do you think? And he says, okay, what we call the great commandment. Jesus says, do that, and you will have eternal life. There's no way to properly read this text without putting an emphasis on, on doing. This is a text about what says easy and, and does hard. There's some things that theory's not enough, right? I almost didn't graduate from Biola right back after the earth's crust cooled <laughs> because I made a contract with the, with the registrar's office about my classes, and they signed off on it, only they signed off on one class they shouldn't have, and the department kicked back and said, we're not going to count that. And so as I'm supposed to be walking, they're saying, oh, whoops, never mind, we changed the plan because the department trumps us. And, and what it was is I had taken a speech course online, or actually back then it was correspondence, you actually had to mail things back and forth, right? And so this is a speech course, and the speech department, or the communication department says, that's not speech, that's just theory. Well, I know that, but I couldn't fit a class in, and they said it was okay. And the communication department says, uh-uh. No, nope, theory doesn't count. There are certain things that you actually have to, to do. We worked it out, but in this particular case, Jesus is talking about doing something, so don't soften that. But at the same time, don't Forget everything that you've learned about the Word of God and what the gospel is, because the gospel is not about do, it's about done. It's not about what do I do, it's about what Christ has done. So how does this work? Well, the key is to look at what's commanded. What is it that I have to do to be a true follower of God? Love God with everything that's in me. Okay, that's a heart change. That's a heart posture. That's where we get repentance and faith. It's a surrender. There's a lot of doing that flows out of that. But the reality is there's a place where I come to the end of myself and and surrender fully to God. That's why Jesus can say what he says. And I wouldn't want anyone to be confused because if you're here this morning and you're trying to figure out how do I follow God, how do I connect with him, we're going to talk a lot about what we're supposed to do. But that flows out of something that has happened to us. Because there's this heart change. If, if the lawyer had answered anything else, Jesus wouldn't have been able to say, okay, do that. But because he answered what he did, yeah, do that. Surrender your heart fully to God. Then the rest will flow. So don't let that throw you off. Keep going in the story here. 
verse 29, desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who's my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whenever you, whatever more you spend, I will pay you when I come back. The, the best we can tell from documents about this time, he's probably given about three weeks worth of room and board. This is a generous act. And he says, And if there's more, I'll, I'll do that too. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Okay, this well-known passage, two things I want to uh, make really clear. First off, it's not about compassion. That's how we read it easily. Don't do that. Stay with me, though. Compassion is really important, and it's important in this text, but it's not the center point. Okay, Jesus is actually using compassion as an illustration to drive home the center point. And as we read this, we need to remember there is no good Samaritan. There's no injured man on the side of the road. There's no priest. There's no Levite. There's no innkeeper. They're all made up in the moment so that Jesus, who is real, can talk to this lawyer who is real, and Luke is writing this story for us so that we can, we can interact with that. And what Luke's really saying is, you see this lawyer? Don't be that guy. This guy's got a problem, and Jesus is going to push him, and the, the place he's going to push him is at compassion. So we'll come to that. We're, gonna, we're not taking that out of the story. We're just going to put it in its rightful place. There's a contrast that drives this whole story forward. And so if you mark your Bible, I'll show you what to mark. If not, just take note of it. But just look at how Jesus responds to this guy. This is a guy who literally has all the answers, and he has the right answers, and he's failing the course. The only truth statements, the, the actual answers are given by the guy, not Jesus. What do I need to do? Well, what do you think? Well, here's what I think. You're right. Now go do that. Yeah, but what about, well, okay, let me tell you this story. Now with that story, what do you think? Well, I think you're right. Now go do that. We have a guy who actually gets the right answers, and he's failing the course because some things are about more than answers. They're about the actions that flow out of a transformed life. And, and what I need is for this to come off the page and live in the real world, and that's what this is about. And if you look at Jesus' response to this guy, let me just point it out to you in verse 28. Do this. If you're going to underline something, that would be the thing to underline. Jesus is emphasizing that. Do this. He's given the answer, now do it. Go all the way to the end. Verse 37. Guy gives an answer. Jesus says, yes, go and do this. Jesus is, is telling him, yeah, you, you understand now, 
Go live that out. Do this. It never changes. In fact, the grammar is such that he's saying, make this a practice. This is your regular habit to live this out. And, is it, and if that focus on actually living out what the message is isn't strong enough just in those two encounters, look at how Jesus tells the story. He's setting it up, and he's saying, okay, let me tell you a story, and there's one good guy in there. We're going to know who that is. Listen to how I describe him. And look at verse 34. Just look at the verbs. What does the Samaritan do? He went to, he bound up, he poured on, he set him on, he brought him to, and he took care of. Those are all actions. This is one of those passages that says easy and does hard. And the challenge is, it's got to actually breathe. It's got to actually live out in my life. It's not something that I just say, yeah, I believe that. Well, let's see. Do you really believe that? And if if you don't get anything else, here's, here's the two things that this is driving home for us. I need to be all in with God and all out for people. I need to be all in with God and all out for people. No boundaries whatsoever between me and God. And no boundaries whatsoever in my heart between me and others. There's appropriate boundaries in behavior and living out life, but not in my heart. And that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Luke wants us to see that this guy almost gets it. But he comes in half-hearted in his approach to God, and so he's cold-hearted in his response to people instead of being all in with God and all out for people. So there's our question as we wrestle with this. That's the question we want to have the Holy Spirit search us on is am I being half-hearted towards God? That's what short-circuits this guy. Okay, look at how he talks and what drives the passage forward in his mouth, right? Verse 25, Luke's describing him. He says, he stood up and put him to the test. You may want to mark that or just take note of that. And then the next descriptor comes in verse 29, desiring to justify himself. You may want to mark that or make note of that. And then the last descriptor, it's subtle, but it's very clear if you understand the context. In verse 37, the one who one who. We're going to see that's really important how he says that. So we have Jesus saying, I want you to live out your faith. I want it to be real. That's how I know it's real. It looks like something. And we know that always comes by the power of the Spirit. That always comes by grace. This isn't a call to say, okay, just uh, get up and do it harder, because it's rooted in a complete surrender to God. That's the only reason it actually works. But Jesus is saying, if it works, it works. And the problem with the lawyer is you're not actually fully surrendered to God. And I can tell by how you're treating others. And Luke's saying, don't be that guy. So what does that guy do? Puts him to the test, desires to justify himself, and he says the words, the one who. Let's take a first look at this. This is him being half-hearted towards God. He stands up and puts Jesus to the test. What does that mean? Well, It's not precisely clear. It's somewhere on a continuum from being suspicious to being antagonistic. And it hasn't defined it any more than that. Maybe he's completely antagonistic and he's really on the attack. Or maybe he's one of those guys, because there are some in the gospel narratives, who are, well, I don't think so. 
I'm, I'm really cautious about who Jesus is. I'm suspicious that this isn't right, what people are thinking, but let me see what he says here. I'm kind of exploring, but I've got all my guard up. I've got all my, my arms are out stiff, right? And when I come to God, when you come to God, when we come that way, we come, we come guarded, we come, we come reluctantly, and that short circuits his work. Right? We, have to, we have to let that go. If I'm going to come to God, I have to be open to him. And it's amazing how easy it is to kind of come, but not really. And that's a good place to just ask the Holy Spirit to search my heart. Do I really, am I really open to you, God, or do I have my walls up? Some people actually might be a bit antagonistic. You're here for whatever reason, and you're just kind of exploring. Probably most of us in the room aren't real prone to that, but we may have been hurt. We may have been disappointed. We may be irritated with God because he didn't follow the script we gave him. I mean, it's right there in black and white, Lord. All you had to do is what I said, and you didn't do it. And now I don't know if I can... There's all different kinds of things that can go on internally. That's what sits this guy on the wrong path. He's testing Jesus. He's coming with some reservation. He's reluctant. And I need to be careful about that. And if I find myself being reluctant towards God, I need to ask God to open my heart so that I'm open to him. Look at the second thing he does. Verse 29, he desires to justify himself, right? Steve mentioned I was in the photography industry for a lot of years. That was back before it all went digital. So everyone wanted to come in, and they sort of liked a picture that they saw. But it was never good enough, right? So they always wanted what? They always wanted retouching. Right, can you just change this? I, I like the picture, but I don't like my smile. My eyes are partly closed. My double chin is showing you, whatever it is. Can you do this and that? Because I like it mostly, but... And this guy is doing a retouch job before God, right? Or today, it's, it's kind of how we live on social media. I mean, on our social media platform, we look like we have the coolest lives ever, right? Everything's about this great thing and that great thing and this wonderful person. And then we go home and complain or even weep about how messed up our lives are. And it's a total disconnect from what's out there. This guy's coming to, to God, but he's coming with a retouch brush. He's photoshopping himself. He doesn't, he doesn't really want to know what God thinks of him. He's got to learn to be, he's got to learn to be not only open to God, but he's got to learn to be honest before God if God's going to work in his life. And, and it's easy for us to subtly do the same thing. I come before God, but I don't really bring all of the ugliness that's me. I bring parts of my life and there's parts that are just kind of out of bounds. We don't talk about, we don't look at. Or I learn to think of myself better than you if we're having a conflict. Or I learn to make, think of myself better than that if it's about a circumstance. And I start retouching. I start just adjusting the picture. He comes as if he wants to know that God's good with him. He says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? I, I want to know that God's happy with me. I want to know that God thinks I'm good. But that's not really what he wants to know. He wants to think he's good. He wants to feel good about himself. And so he just wants Jesus to tell him God's okay with that. Doesn't actually want truth. He wants things to, to feel good. 
And that short-circuits his discipleship. That short-circuits his ability to follow God because if I'm really open with God, uh, that may require some radical shift on my part. I'm looking for loopholes so that I can check the box and go, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. I was at Chipotle recently with a friend, and we were eating lunch, and this homeless guy came up to us. We're sitting on the patio, and he came up and said, hey, can I have some lunch? And as a rule, I'll generally feed somebody. I figure even if they're a con man, they're probably hungry. I try to be careful about what I do and don't do, and I don't want to facilitate wrong things, but I also want to care for somebody. So here we go. I I take this guy in, buy him lunch. He comes back. He sits with me and my friend, and we're talking for a while. No big deal, just kind of three guys interacting. And then this guy leaves, and wow, it's like a nanosecond before this woman from across the patio comes up to me like, I don't know what she's going to do. She doesn't look like him at all. She looks very... Uh, poised, anxious, but poised in general. She's got stylish dress and clean and all of this. And she's obviously someone who's not living on the street. And she comes up to me and starts asking a bunch of questions. And pretty soon, I, I don't even remember what she said, but why she said it, I remember perfectly. She wanted me to know that she hadn't fed him, but normally she feeds people like that, but she didn't this time because, and it was this big old long list. And what she was doing is she was retouching her soul And it didn't matter, right? First off, not everybody that comes and asks me for something will I necessarily do something for. There's reasons to and reasons not to. Secondly, I'm not God, so she doesn't answer to me. Thirdly, I had no clue. I wouldn't have known she did or didn't do anything except she came up to me. And her whole reason, I think, has to be she was feeling bad and she wanted to feel good. And so she went through this big We do that with God. That's what this guy's doing. Instead of saying, here I am, God. Search me. Know my heart. You say, well, yeah, but, uh, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm better than that guy. I'm okay. He wants to justify himself. How often do I work hard to say this doesn't really say what it obviously says? Because... I don't want to do what it says. I don't want to be accountable. He's got this half-hearted approach to God, and that's what's short-circuiting his ability to, to really know him. Luke says, don't be that guy. He comes to Jesus for answers, but not really. He's got his own agenda that he's working. And finally, he just refuses in the end. Look at those last words that I pointed out to you, verse 37, when he says, the one who showed him mercy... That's really significant in that culture. The one who is referring to the Samaritan. Right? The one who is the Samaritan. It would be simpler to say the Samaritan. He can't bring himself to do that. That sticks in his throat. Because the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other, and they had religious justification so that it wasn't this raw, at least in their minds, racism or cultural superiority. It was just right. I mean, we're godly and they're wretched. I'm not even going to say his name. I'm not going to say who he is. If I was in Jerusalem and I wanted to travel to Galilee, both of which are Jewish territory, Samaria lies between. And if I had enough time, I would sometimes have to go through Samaria. I didn't have a choice. But if I had enough time, I would literally go down to the Jordan River at Jericho, cross go up the other side and then come back across lest my feet get soiled with the soil of Samaria. And Jesus tells this story 
And at the end, he gives the right answer. It's clear. The, the Samaritan's the hero in the story, but he can't bring himself to say that because he's, he's resistant. He's rejecting God's work. He's begrudging, and he's not budging. I can say the answer, but I'm not going to go there. Have you ever found yourself in a place because of maybe something emotional that's really deep? Or some commitment, some position in life you're so deeply in intertwined with that to change it is going to be just really, really hard? You know you should, but you're not going to. A friend of mine, this has been a long time now, but one day just really broke my heart because they were struggling with something, and I knew that. They're a very mature, godly person. But they were struggling with something, and then they, they said these words, I know this is an idol. And that wasn't prelude to repentance. That wasn't prelude to a change. They didn't say, I know this is an idol, therefore God help me. They said, I know this is an idol, but. Now this isn't somebody who's new to the faith, who's just trying to figure it out and finds themselves crossways accidentally. This isn't somebody who's had this deep struggle. This is somebody who's passionately seeking to follow Jesus, and yet in this thing, they could even see it was an idol. But this guy thinks he's coming. Well, Luke is showing us, here's a guy coming to Jesus. But he's not really coming to him. If I'm going to really experience what God has for me, this is really the battleground. That's actually why the Good Samaritan story is told is to point out this issue. I need to be all in with God. And that's easy to say. But it's hard to do. So the question for us this morning is, right now, in this moment, where am I? Am I all in? Am I somehow reluctant and I'm suspicious and ah, keeping God at arm's length? Am I retouching my own life so I don't have to face fully what that might mean? Am I just saying, you know, God, I love you. I'll do anything and everything, but I'm not going to go there. I just reject ultimately. Or am I ready to say, okay, Lord, I need a lot of grace for this. I need a lot of help, but here I am. That's what Jesus wanted for the lawyer. He's not trying to make him look bad. The lawyer may be trying to make Jesus look bad. He's testing him. Jesus is sincere. He's trying to say, come on. You've got so much. You know so much. Just, just let this live out in the real world. Let it change your heart. And that's why he deals with the question of response to people. The half-hearted response to God leads to the cold-hearted response to people. So Jesus tells the story 
of the Good Samaritan. And the first thing he does is he dismisses a debate that's very hotly contested at this moment in their history. It sounds like this guy is just being really petty. He's not. He's a lawyer. He's a religious scholar. He's raising a real question. Who is in and who is out? Where do we draw the line? I'm all for loving my neighbor as myself. No qualms about that. Who's my neighbor? Who's in? Who's out? And Jesus dismisses that. He said it's not about who to love. It's about how to be a lover. That's the question. And there is no line. There's no boundary. There may be boundaries in how we interact, sure. There may be boundaries that are just appropriate and right. But when there's a boundary in my heart, the whole thing's collapsed. And this this religious scholar comes to Jesus and he raises a question that's being debated. There's a book called The Wisdom of Sirach that they would all know. It was a religious text that they all really listened to had a lot of wisdom in it. And one of the things it says is don't do kindness to sinners. Don't waste your time. Don't do that. There was a whole group of people called the Essenes who had kind of pulled into this monastic fortress mentality. And they were scattered all over. Maybe the people who were at Qumran where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they might have been Essenes or they were Essene-like. They were a group that just kind of pulled off to themselves and lived righteous lives in their little community. And they actively taught, love the children of light, hate the children of darkness, By the way, everyone in our group is the children of light. Fill in the blank. Who's in the children of darkness? Everybody else. You, me, everybody else. They're drawing a line. More common to our understanding from the New Testament are the Pharisees who were just really great line drawers. They were all over Jesus because he was eating with tax collectors and sinners, which was a statement of acceptance. Don't do that. Don't you know these people are sinners? You can't do that. And Jesus says, stop drawing lines. If you've met a need, you've met a neighbor. Everybody. Everybody is encompassed in the heart of God. Everyone is embraced in the heart of God, and they should be embraced in your heart, too. And what happens, now that's really hard. It's easy for me to look at all the people it's easy for me to love, but depending on where you grew up and what your circumstances are, we draw lines about all kinds of things, right? We draw lines about race. Your skin is darker than mine, therefore, which, by the way, is everyone on the planet because you have skin color and I don't, right? And we make it about that. You're lighter, you're darker. What difference does that make? God made all of those colors. Well, your culture's this way and my culture's that way. Great, celebrate that difference and enjoy it, but it doesn't mean that you're better or worse than I am, and it doesn't mean I draw a line. Maybe it makes it harder to engage, and maybe our relationship looks a little different than it will be somebody just like me, but it's about the heart. We draw lines about politics. (laughs) A lot of line drawing right now. A lot of us just want to put a circle and close in on it. It's like, oh, man, we draw lines about that, and we, we're self-righteous in that, right? We draw, draw economic lines, education lines. Do you look down on people that are at Walmart? Do you look down at people that are at Nordstrom? Right? Happens all the time. And it's easy for all of us 
Because unless we're all in with God, unless he's transforming our heart, we all want to do well, and well for us is, is relative terms. So if you ever notice how when I draw a line, it always surrounds me. I'm in, and I can make it as big or as small as I want. Everyone else is out. This is a, this is a staggering thought. With one microscopic exception, the universe is absolutely filled with other people. God's heart is for everyone. This guy is trying to draw the lines, and he's following the tradition of the day, and Jesus says, ignore that. They're all wrong. The reality is no lines. So before we jump on the compassion piece, let's just look at that. Just what does it mean to love my brother? Is there somebody I know who needs forgiveness? Is there somebody I know who needs some practical act of service? Is there somebody I know who needs to be loved? Is there somebody I know who just needs to be encouraged? I, re- I read this recently. I love it. It's a, it's a fail-proof test how you can know if someone needs encouragement. You, you want to take note of this because you'll want to use it. How do I know when somebody needs encouragement? Just answer this one simple question. Are they breathing? If they're breathing, they need encouragement. Do I live my life to add value to other people? Am I all out for other people? That comes from a heart that's centered in God, and this this lawyer is not willing to go where God wants him to go, and so he begins to really push back on the implications for what it means in community. And so Jesus pushes him. That's why he tells the story. And notice this. It's not that the Samaritan is the victim. That would have been hard enough. But perhaps humanity would have rolled up in him if he tells the story about a Samaritan that's been beaten and abused and nearly dead. Okay, I guess I'll help him. It's like, no, the Samaritan's the hero. Jesus isn't saying the Samaritan needs your help. He's saying the Samaritan's better than you, dude. That's really pushing on his heart. And Jesus isn't doing that to take him down a peg. He's doing that to open him up. And he walks away from that. He says, I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to say the guy's name. I won't do that. I won't dignify. I, I know the answer. I can't answer any other way, but I don't have to like it. So let's talk about compassion. Because there's people who have particular needs, and God seems to have a particular heart for those on the margins, for those that are hurting, for those that have disability, for those that have disadvantaged circumstances, right? There was a guy I talked with on the street. I don't know if he took advantage of me. He managed to spend like 20 plus dollars at Chipotle. I've never seen anyone do that. So he was certainly getting my money's worth out of it. I'll take one of those, one of those, one of those, one of those, one of those. Okay. Here's a guy that has a need. I don't have to meet every need, but I have to have an open heart for any need. I reread a book, or not, I just reread some excerpts from a book recently. I read it a number of years ago. If, if you're looking to wrestle with the question of compassion, particularly homelessness, there's a great book called Under the Overpass, written a number of years ago by a couple of young Christian guys who decide to live on the streets for a year, and they travel all around seeing what happens. And they're in Phoenix near the end of their experiment, and they're there for a while, and 
you know, they're ripe by this point in time. They're very evoking of Old Testament prophet, ragged and looking like they've just come out of the wilderness and smelling like they've just come out of the wilderness. And um, so they're at this big, huge church, and they decide to sleep on the lawn there. They think that's going to be a safe and comfortable place to sleep. So they do. Early on a Saturday morning, then they wake up because the sun came up, and they get out their Bibles and their journals, which they do every time, every day. It's just part of their practice. And so they're reading their Bibles and journaling, when cars start to arrive, and a guy, two guys actually, come across the parking lot with real purpose towards them, and the guy who was obviously in charge looks at them and says, you guys can't do that here. <laughs> um, you mean read our Bibles and journal? Yes, we don't do that here. This is a church, right? Well, it is, but you're not going to do that here. Just really harsh. And he walked away, said, you guys need to leave, and they didn't leave. They're figuring, well, let's see what happens. He comes back, and veins are popping out, and just, just about to explode. And they're, okay, we'll leave. And they go off, and they find a place to have some breakfast. They've got a little bit of money and whatnot, and go about their day. The next day, it's time for church. What church do you think God laid on their heart to attend? <laughs> so they show up at church, and they're greeted politely, right? And there's plenty of people around. It's this big nice evangelical church with a great message and great worship service and all of that, and everything's going fine. They notice people keep somewhat of a distance, but they're assuming that's the odor shield barrier that they're looking for, and they're okay. You know, they're used to that. After the service, they turn around, and the guy that kicked them out the day before comes running up to them, tears down, streaming down his face, you know, snot, everything. He's like a 50-year-old guy coming down the, the aisle all in tears and blubbering, I am so glad you guys are here. I am so glad. I went looking for you yesterday because right after I did that, I was so convicted by the Lord and I felt terrible and I tried to find you. We were actually going to have a breakfast. I wanted to invite you into breakfast and I couldn't find you. I drove all around and I'm so glad you're here. Just on and on. Kind of in this loop, in fact, because he was so distraught. And they're fine. It's okay. All right, all right. Thank you. Thank you for the apology. We understand. He said, no, you don't understand. Yes, we do. We've been doing this a long time. No, you don't understand. I'm the head of our homeless ministry. Okay, that's this guy's thing. And in an unguarded moment, now, maybe they should have been removed from the property, right? There's times and places to do that, but that's not what he was doing. He was just, he was putting the barrier down in his heart, and these guys were gone. Jesus says through Luke, don't, don't be that guy. A disciple of Jesus it's very human. We all struggle. We all need grace. We all need God's working and we need each other. But our goal is to be all in with God and to be all out for others. No barriers in my heart, even if there have to be in my practice. And no resistance to God. And if I'm finding myself resistant, God grace me. Help me to work through that. So here's the question for right now, for you. Am I totally open to God right now? Is there something that he wants me to do to respond? And when I leave this place, by his grace, will I move toward people and will I move toward need? Lord, I pray that you would help us to be the kind of disciples that you call us to be. We know that there's stuff to do Lord, we can't do that in our strength. We can't will it up. It's not this moralistic obligation. 
But Lord, we need your grace and power of your spirit. The fruit of your spirit is love, so would you give us that fruit? Lord, would you help us to love you with everything that's in us, to love our neighbor as ourself, and not just say that, but by your grace, do that. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.